Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachar Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley with a new recreation map you'll hear about later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages Oregonians to come out and experience the changing seasons, but also be well prepared for whatever winter brings. Remember to always double check and maybe triple check tripcheck.com to see what Oregon's mountain roads look like before heading out. Always a smart idea, and that includes the place we're talking about today, perhaps the most frequently hiked and traveled destination in Oregon. It's a place home to the tallest waterfall, most brilliant wildflowers, and a food and culture matched by few places in the Northwest. Yes, we're heading to the Columbia River Gorge. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, we're going to take a deep plunge into the Columbia River Gorge, the natural playground east of Portland along the Oregon and Washington border. We're going to talk about the best hikes and best places to eat while breaking down everything from wildfires to ancient floods to history to the latest news. To help us in this epic quest, we're joined by two special guests. In the middle section, you'll hear from Stan Hinatsu, Recreation Staff Officer for the U.S. Forest Service and Gorge Scenic Area. He's the guy in charge of all the trails and campgrounds that you love so much. We'll talk about the Gorge's issues with growing crowds, permits, closures, to name just a few items. And we'll also talk about his plans for one of the most beautiful but troubled places in Oregon, a mossy slot canyon known as Oneana Gorge. So that's on the newsier side of the podcast. But to get us rolling and to talk about the Gorge's best hikes, restaurants, and more. We are thrilled to welcome back Matt Wastradowski, author of the recently published Moon Travel Guides. This one is called Columbia River Gorge and Mount Hood. Matt, thanks for being back. Thanks for having me. Super stoked to be here and also really excited to finally know how to pronounce Oneonta Gorge. <laughs> it's one of those ones you look at it a few different ways and you're like well that could go that could go like three different ways but uh, exactly. I, I had enough people pronounce it for me that I, I think i got it um all right matt so we've been planning this podcast for quite a while and i think the time is right for us to do this the reason is that just about every major trail in the gorge has reopened after the twin calamities of the 2017 eagle creek fire which burned 50,000 acres and then the pandemic which is obviously still with us, but it no longer includes outdoor closures of places like the Gorge. So let me ask you this, since you've been back, what has struck you about the Gorge? Is it the same as it ever was? Did the fire transform it? Is it better, worse? What did you reflect about the Gorge in your new book? Yeah, that's a great question. It's such an interesting time for the Gorge right now because you know, when I started writing this book in April of 2020, like the the historic Columbia River Highway was still closed to the public. You had to show ID at a checkpoint <laughs> to prove that you lived in the area to visit the highway. And so it was a really interesting time 
in a really strange and unsettled environment to write a book about the gorge. But I think as I've researched it, as I've been back, as I've explored, one of the things I've kind of latched onto are these themes of rebirth, you know, seeing the trails reopen, seeing the new growth along these hiking trails, being able to experience the the restaurants and breweries and farms and markets that are out there. There's still a lot to love. Yes, it is crowded. I'm sure we'll discuss that, but being able to enjoy what's out there, it's it's a different experience, but it is still a great experience. All right, so I have to come clean. The Gorge is not historically my favorite place to experience the outdoors. I, I live south of Portland, so to get there, I'd have to drive all the way up through the Portland metro area, which can take forever, given traffic there. And of all the places hit by Oregon's population boom and the resulting crowding issues, you know, the Gorge was you know, has always been kind of the poster child. But I did finally head back out there recently, and I was reminded that there really is no place quite like it. I, you know, if you get there as early as possible and even hike in the rain to avoid the crowds, which is something mm-hmm. I've taken to doing, yeah, there's just nothing like it. Those world famous basalt cliffs with waterfalls, just, you know, tons of waterfalls streaming down them, the spring wildflowers. I mean, the, the gorge may have its issues, but the scenery never disappoints. No, no, not at all. Even, even with some of the wildfire scars, it's still just absolutely incredible. I was actually driving up to Portland from my home in Bend a couple of weeks ago, and it was really fun to drive along 84 and you see all these like seasonal waterfalls that aren't accessible. You can't hike to them. They're just tumbling off cliff sides and into creek beds below. You can even see them from like Highway 84. It is such a cool experience to be able to see that. Um, there's really nowhere else in the world like it. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more with some of the other ones. But overall, the gorge looks pretty good at this yeah, point, yeah. you know, post post wildfire. You know, mm-hmm. we get all these images right after the fire of, you know, it looks devastated and and destroyed. But boy, you go back there a couple of years later and you can see the impact from the fire for sure, mm-hmm. especially in some places. But overall, like if you didn't know you wouldn't be, you know, it was so struck by it. It wouldn't be something that like yeah. dramatically grabbed you. Yeah. It doesn't take long for, for the growth to come back, does it? No, not really. Well, yeah. especially in a place like this where we get as much rain as we do. But okay. Sure. In this, in this podcast, we promised to cover a lot of ground. So we're going to kind of jump into it. And the best way to do that, I think is in classic explore Oregon podcast tradition. And that is to pick 10 of the most iconic gorge hikes and destinations and use them as kind of a jumping off point to touch on everything that makes them this area so special. So we're going to hit on history and news, how to plan a trip there. And as bonus, Matt is going to pick the perfect restaurant or pub to go with each hike. (laughs) So we are going to, we're going to match and pair hikes with, uh, you know, news and history, but also a place to get a great bite. So you ready to get rolling, Matt? Let's do it. All right, well, I'm going to start us off with a place that is going to get us right into the heart of the podcast, and that is the Eagle Creek Trail. So it was the birthplace of the Eagle Creek Fire, which we'll talk about in a second, and it just reopened this past summer. I think a lot of people would consider this the Gorge's most spectacular trail, and I don't think that that has changed at all, even with the sites of wildfire like the blackened trees um, you know, that you'll see along the trail. The trail is really known for waterfalls, including three pretty famous ones, along with the fact that it basically tightropes along the edges of sheer cliffs 
in multiple places where builders essentially dynamited the trail into existence back in 1910. A lot of people love coming swimming here and uh, going down to Punchbowl Falls in the summer, but I actually prefer going in the heavy rain because there are just countless waterfalls dripping down the edges of this really steep and narrow canyon. You can hike four miles to Punchbowl Falls, six miles to High Bridge, 12 miles round trip to Tunnel Falls, or you can even backpack all the way to Wadham Lake. There's so much scenery. There's so many options. Eagle Creek really is a gem. So what sticks out to you about Eagle Creek Trail Map? I think you covered a lot of it. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the, for me, one of the really defining things is that it, it's so much of what the gorge does well, all rolled into one hike. Like you said, there are the waterfalls, the moss covered cliff sides, bubbling waterways, you name it. And I love that every time you go, you have a different experience. Like, like you mentioned, going after a heavy rain, you get to see all of these waterfalls that might just be there for a few hours or a few days. Mm -hmm. um, if you go in summer, it's a really fun place to kind of cool off. It's it feels like it's always misting there somehow, mm -hmm. even in summer. Uh, yeah, just a really magical place. All right. So obviously we can't talk about this trail without talking about the fire that really defined the gorge since 2017. So the Eagle Creek fire and speaking as a reporter who's covered the state for 15 years now was a big turning point. Like Oregon had had big wildfires plenty of times in the past, from the Tillamook burn of the 1930s to the Biscuit and B&B &B complex of 2002 and 2003. But Eagle Creek was the one that punched Oregon in the face and made us realize that we'd entered kind of a new era. It was just so visible with the flames sprouting right over Interstate 84, blanketing Portland in smoke, that it just became this mass awakening. And since that time, Things have never been quite the same. Oregon is feels like kind of a changed place due to climate change, not fundamentally, but subtly. And I think the Eagle Creek fire is the moment we kind of understood that. Now, as far as the story there, I think most people remember that the fire ignited uh, after a teenager tossed a firework off the trail into the blazing hot and dry afternoon on uh, September 2nd. There's a lot more you could say about that, including his punishment, the aftermath, there's a lot there, but honestly, the story I choose to remember is a more positive one. And that was about 150 hikers who were trapped by the fire, who were actually caught between two fires that day, burning on opposite ends of Eagle Creek Trail. Some in the group included these teenagers from Salem that I got to know pretty well and who told me about this adventure of a lifetime that they had. They just come up the trail, you know, to celebrate a friend's birthday. They're going to go swimming. And just as they're about to go home, they, they start walking down the trail and there's a huge wall of flames and they're forced to turn back. So all 150 hikers kind of gather around the Punchbowl Falls area. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody, you know, there's, there's no word from the outside. And then suddenly a helicopter comes overhead and starts dropping the messages, telling this group what to do because officials couldn't get to him to evacuate him out of there. So this group, you know, which is a lot of, you know, it's teenagers wearing swimming suits. It's, you know, a couple just out for a day hike. They're all kind of thrown together in this really crazy adventure. So they all start hiking east um, towards Wadham Lake to, to try to get access that way. You know, so they're all night they, they're hiking down the trail. They just keep going. You know, the, the Eagle Creek fire is growing fast. And so it's throwing little spot fires around this group of, of hikers, you know, in the middle of the night that they have to snuff out. It's really a, a scary experience. 
Uh, they spend the night, you know, just on the cold ground. Um, a lot of them, again, just wearing swimming suits and stuff like that. The next day, they did make it to Wadham Lake, and they were picked up uh, before the fire really exploded. And they were got out of there to had a very emotional meeting with, with their parents and stuff like that. I think one of my favorite quotes of all time, you know, being a reporter for a long time, came from a 15-year-old named Abby Bork. And she said this about the experience. There were times when we thought we were going to die. But actually, it turned out being a lot of fun, which <laughs> I think is the most 15-year-old thing I've ever heard <laughs> recorded in newsprint. So, Matt, what are your memories of the Eagle Creek Fire or Eagle Creek Trail during during that moment? I think for me, one of my biggest memories, like obviously, the fire was devastating. It was something that all of us kind of remember. I think all of us have memories of different moments from during the fire, like I remember house sitting for my parents in Vancouver in the midst of the fire and waking up one morning and seeing ash on my car, which was a new experience. I never experienced anything like that. Part of the reason we were all so devastated is just because of like how special the trail is. My very first backpacking experience, a friend and I hiked out to seven and a half mile camp along that trail. And it was a beautiful, I think it was a late summer day, kind of a nice crisp breeze in the air. The foliage was starting to turn. And it was one of those experiences that I remember thinking, you know, this being my first backpacking trip, I remember thinking, oh, am I going to make it? How am I going to do? This is a, this is a lot of weight. And it was one of those things that we were just so awed by the scenery around us that we got to seven and a half mile camp and it was like, oh, I don't even feel like I've broken a sweat yet. Um, so I think it just speaks to just how mesmerizing the uh, the trail really has been and just what the fire took from us. But at the same time, you know, there have been a lot of positives in the wake of the fire. Like I think you've seen a lot of uh, volunteer groups go out. Trail Keepers of Oregon is one um, to go out and get those trails back into shape and clear debris make them safe for the rest of us. And uh, it's been really inspiring to see all the work that's gone into to rebuilding that trail and sort of opening it back up so that we can enjoy this really beautiful, you know, cathedral in nature once again. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it, it's helped recently too for so many people to get back out there and see, look, it wasn't destroyed. Like mm -hmm. it looks a little bit different, but you know, this, these places were made to burn. They've been burning for millennia upon millennia and it's still there. The waterfalls are still there. The trail still yep. looks good. It took a lot of work, but mm -hmm. you know, this is, this is a natural part of, of the way things work in the Northwest. Absolutely. Um, you know, I know that this, that was kind of a long segment. Eagle Creek trail is a big deal. Um, so this is sort of an odd transition, but <laughs> you know, if you're headed out to Eagle Creek mm -hmm. trail, where do you go for a favorite local restaurant? I know a lot of those businesses and Cascade Locks got hit hard by the, the closures and the fire that year. So is there a good local spot that where you can have a good meal and support a local business out there? Yes, there are tons. And one of my favorite places is the Brigham Fish Market right there on the main drag in town. It's actually run by two sisters, two uh, members of, I believe, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla. And it specializes in wild caught fish from the Columbia River, and it's pretty seasonal. So if you're up for some good fish and chips, the selection changes with whatever's in season. You know, which fish are running and when 
And um, so it's a great way to kind of experience the tradition of fishing in the Columbia River Gorge while you're enjoying a great, you know, a, a great bite and supporting a really great local business. Wow, that sounds fantastic. That is yeah. that's definitely one I'll have to check out. All right, well Matt, let's let's keep it going here with that's just our first place that we're <laughs> going to talk about of 10. Uh, most of them probably won't be that long. So Matt, what is your first pick to get us rolling here? Yeah, so for this very first pick, we're going to kind of stay in the Cascade Locks area and I wanted to pick the Dry Creek Falls Trail, which is actually just off the Pacific Crest Trail as it heads south from Cascade Locks. The trailhead is actually right next to the Bridge of the Gods. And uh, it's, you know, especially for seeing not just the damage of the wildfire, but how it's rebounded. It's a really great hike. It's a nice kind of gentle, steady ascent through a pretty charred fire. But the trail ends at the Dry Creek Falls, which is in this really cool amphitheater of columnar basalt. It's really beautiful. It's one of the most photographed waterfalls in the gorge, which was saying something because there are so many. But one of the really great things about it isn't just the waterfall, but you know, I think I first did that hike in 2018, soon after it reopened, and it was pretty devastating. And then I re I did the hike again with a friend in 2019, and you saw more growth. You saw more wildflowers. You saw more ferns. And then I did the hike again in 2020. Same story. It was even greener. And so it's one of those really cool hikes where you get to see, you know, in real time, the gorge recovering and uh, working its way back. What are the stats on uh, Dry Creek Falls? You know, just if you're just doing the waterfall hike, uh, how far is it taking you and how, how tough is the trail? So the hike itself is about five miles round trip and you gain a little over 1200 feet of elevation gain. It never gets super steep. It's kind of a steady incline, but never, um, never quite a thigh burner the the whole way. Gotcha. Well, I'm yeah. I've, I'd love that you picked this one because this is actually one of the only hikes in the gorge that I've just never gotten to. So now really? now it's now it's definitely on my list. <laughs> All right. So that sounds good. What's what's the restaurant or brewery of choice that you're gonna recommend nearby? It's not too far from uh, Cascade Locks where we were last time. So what's the good pairing for this one? I would say so for a lot of us in the Pacific Northwest, our hike isn't really over until we've enjoyed that first post hike beer. So I would recommend Thunder Island Brewing in the in Cascade Locks. They opened a new facility in downtown in, I believe, the fall of 2020. I definitely miss the original location, which is right on the banks of the Columbia River. But the new facility is a lot bigger, and it still has some really great views of the Columbia River Gorge, the Bridge of the Gods, and of course, a ton of great beer, uh, really wide variety of different styles. So even if you're, you know, maybe you don't love IPAs, you still have plenty of choices. All right. Well, that's a good one. All right. Well, my next next pick is going to be another big topic, a big place. And so for the first time, we're headed to the Washington side of the gorge, to the Eastern Gorge, to visit Columbia Hills State Park, which is just across the big river from the Dalles. It's a fairly new state park by these kind of standards. It was established in 2003 when they merged Horse Thief State Park and Dallas Mountain Ranch into one. That combination brought together a campground, a lake, and a place with an incredible history, including some remarkable Native American petroglyphs. And all this combined with what I think is probably the best wildflower display in the Northwest. Matt, have you been out to Columbia Hills much? 
A little bit. <clears throat> I had actually never been until I started researching this guide. I went out a couple times. I think the first time was for for the wildflower blooms. And then I went later in the summer to see some of the, the petroglyphs and some of the natural features. And I got to tell you, it knocked my socks off. It was such an incredible surprise to me. You know, obviously I'm not the first person to visit, but it was such, it was such an amazing um, site to visit because I think of everything you said, it's, you know, the wildflower blooms are, you know, it's, they kind of start earlier in the season than a lot of the rest of the, the blooms as you get further West, the weather's, typically sunny which never hurts i think the crowds are smaller um mm -hmm. yeah there's just so much to love about that park for sure well let's start with the wildflowers a little bit this is mm -hmm. part of the park that was recently added and it's up in the old dallas mountain ranch part of the park uh, up on this big sunny hillside right above washington highway 14 and they're really something in peak wildflower season uh, which is usually between mid-April and mid-May. I mean, entire hillsides, just entire hillsides light up with bright yellow balsam root and purple lupin. If you want to find peak bloom, it can be a tricky thing, but there's a great website called OregonWildflowers.net, which actually tracks uh, when places in the gorge and across the Northwest are in peak bloom. So you can like click on this fun little map and see, well, is it is it peak bloom or not? And so that helps to inform a trip out there. There's a variety of different hikes you can hit. I like going up to the to the top, um, starting near the ranch trailhead, and there's a whole bunch of different loops that you can kind of string together uh, to create as long or short a trip as you want. Uh, I took a four mile loop with with my kid that in combined eight mile military road and ranch routes, um, but that was again just one option. I mean, you're just swimming in wildflowers during peak <laughs> bloom. There's great views of Mount Hood uh, to boot. So again, I would try to go mid-April to mid-May. And um, yeah, I mean, Matt, I'm curious, how do you think this display, because this is, I feel like a good question. <laughs> do you think that this is the best wildflower display in the gorge or is there another place that, that you would pick first? Oh man, that is such a good question. Like if you um, have to, if you have to power rank this, like your power ranking NBA teams, yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I would say this is right up there with Dog Mountain. Um, yeah. It's you can't go wrong either way. But I think partly what gives us the edge is that you do have those those hillsides like with Dog Mountain, you kind of have to work your way up to the best of the wildflower displays. But when you get to Columbia Hills, like they start at the highway, like if you park at the highway and hike from there, you mm -hmm. are already in the, the hillsides covered in wildflowers. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think you can make a very strong case for for this being the best wildflower hike in the gorge, and you you will get no argument from me. Well, I think it's also a little more accessible because you can drive mm -hmm. high to the top and then yeah. you know almost work your way down, or you can start on the bottom right along the highway, and so you've kind of both options. And if it's you know if it's blooming like lower on the mountain, you can go there. If it's higher on the mountain, you can start there. Absolutely. So there's you know a lot of options. So. Wildflowers are on the, the top side of the park, but the lower part of the park is great also. There's a small campground and most importantly, a really dynamic and beautiful collection of petroglyphs from indigenous first people who lived here for a millennia. The petroglyphs were originally located in a canyon about two miles away from this site, but unfortunately, like many other places, uh, it was flooded by the Columbia River dams and hydro projects of the 1950s and 60s. 
it's one of those tragedies of the gorge you know the way uh culture and people were just sort of erased in the blink of an eye the petroglyphs are a great reminder of that history though and they're cool for a lot of different reasons but the one that stuck out to me was that historically they served a very useful purpose the pictures that you see on the stones and you can just walk down near the campsite walk along there and you know the petroglyphs are right there so you can just do a self-guided tour but it's believed that these pictures served as maps showing the location and distance to resources such as food and water and even information about animal migrations and other resources nearby so this is kind of like an early map or guidebook system <laughs> that uh you know first people used to to navigate the world they were living in so you can do that self-guided tour anytime the park is open. And even when the gate is closed, you can walk down and see it. Uh, but there's also a ranger guided tour from April through October on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays where you get to see even better examples of the petroglyphs. I suspect that there is some COVID-19 uh, tweaks to that, but just look at the Columbia Hills State Park website um, and you know figure it out. So Lots of good reasons to come there. And last but not least, um, <laughs> Horse Thief Butte is a beautiful rock formation that's popular for rock climbing out there. Um, and then Horse Thief Lake offers paddling and fishing. So look, I mean, this place is everything. It's got the history. It's got the wildflowers. It's got rock climbing. It's got boating and fishing. You can spend a long time here and never get bored. Yeah. So all right, Matt, this is a, a little bit more of a remote area. We're out in the Eastern Gorge. What kind of food and drink uh, options do you propose out here if you're done with a wildflower hike or done climbing Horse Thief Butte? <laughs> yeah, lots of fun options. Um, <clears throat> if you'd like, you can keep continuing east. And uh, one of the cool things about Highway 14 out there is that you do have a lot of smaller wineries and tasting rooms along the highway. Um, it's a pretty popular grape growing region. So you'll see all these tasting rooms none of them make a bad wine um you can also backtrack and head to the dalles if you are looking for wine sunshine mill is a pretty funky spot in an old cheese it's factory with some pretty good wines and plenty of charm like it's just a fun place to hang out and then if you're looking for food i'm a huge fan of the food cart um, taqueria la fogata which is a food truck in downtown they serve a ton of great tacos burritos and uh yeah, a lot of good, a lot of good stuff. All right, Matt. So what is your second pick? Yeah, so I think my next pick, um, this feels a little unfair, but uh, Waterfall Alley and more specifically the Multnomah Falls to Joaquina Falls Loop. Um, according to, I believe, the Sierra Club, the Oregon side of the Columbia River Gorge has the highest concentration of waterfalls anywhere in North America. And this particular loop is about the best way to experience um, those waterfalls. Like what you can start from either Multnomah Falls or Joaquina Falls, whichever way you start, you start at the base of a really impressive and unbelievable water waterfall. And from there, you just, I think you experience oh, seven, eight waterfalls, something like that. Um, as you ascend beyond Joaquina Falls, and then you make your way over kind of the ridgeline and start descending back toward Multnomah Falls. Just, one beautiful waterfall after another. Um, they're just, it, it's one of those really just magical hikes that it definitely gets popular. But, um, you know, once you kind of ascend away from the base of the waterfalls, you get plenty of, uh, plenty of solitude. 
Yeah, you know, and that's a the a cool loop. It it's important that you know, I think this is the, probably the most visited place in the Columbia River Gorge yes. and it, you know, it can become kind of a madhouse. But again, if you go there early morning on a rainy day, you know, you got to do that loop between yeah. Multnomah and Wakina at least once in your life. And yeah. you know, we take it for granted, but Multnomah Falls is 620 <laughs> feet tall. By far, you know, the tallest like well-known waterfall in mm -hmm. Oregon and one of the tallest on the West Coast. One thing that I always remember about this one was, you know, for a long time, it was the most visited uh, place in Oregon or the place mm -hmm. that people stopped at. And then at one point it was like surpassed by a casino, I think Seven Feathers. <laughs> and there was like sort of this bummer moment in Oregon. But uh, I, that was a while ago. That was that was an yeah. old story. Um <laughs> Yeah. Any other things that jump out to you about Multnomah? That loop is what, five to six miles if you do the whole thing? Is that about moderate difficulty? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, sorry. Yeah. It's six miles and it's almost 1,700 feet of elevation gain. If you, the way I like to do it is um, I like to park at Multnomah Falls just because there's more parking and then take a, the connector trail along the highway to the base of Joaquina Falls ascend there and the trail kind of follows Joaquina Creek for a while before heading into a forest. And that I was really surprised doing that hike. I did that. The most recent time I did that hike was in June and the wildflower displays in June are really something else up there. Some really beautiful, really beautiful blooms, even into kind of early summer. And then on your way down, you follow Multnomah Creek and you have Ecola Falls and just another handful of waterfalls that, kind of fall into the creek there and then yeah getting to end it at the base of Multnomah Falls is never a bad thing okay Matt so after you've done you know the hike in the loop maybe you're wet because it's it's pouring rain and you've you've had solitude I, that's a fun I took my parents on like uh the, on this hike in the pouring rain and oh um they were pretty cold by the end so we headed down to the down to the lodge I mean is the lodge kind of the best place to to get that bite to eat it's it's right there yeah, I would say so. Um, especially since, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I like to end the hike at the base of Multnomah Falls. The lodge is absolutely a fantastic place. They do breakfast and lunch. And one thing I really like about it is they have a lot of kind of Northwest inspired dishes like salmon fillets, rainbow trout. Um, and if you want something a little bit simpler, they do have burgers, sandwiches, salads, like there's something for everyone. And it's a really beautiful, ornate building. It's a, it's a nice way to cap the cap the hike there. Yeah, I mean, when you bring all that together, you know, this really amazing hike, the, you know, one of the tallest waterfalls in the United States, and then food at this really cool lodge, you know, if it weren't for the crowds out there, that'd be a premier experience. And it is, yeah. you just got to go at the right times, I think. Yeah, for sure. All right. So that's our first four picks. Uh, Matt is going to be back in the third part of the podcast to pick out our final three picks each and talk about more places to get some food and drink. But right now, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors before welcoming on Stan Hinatsu, the recreation manager of the Gorge, who's going to talk about some newsier items like crowding, permits, wildfire recovery, and the plan for Oneana Gorge. So stick with us. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At AFRC, we value protecting Oregon's forests and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, 
healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. All right, well, today we're thrilled to be joined by Stan Hinatsu, the Recreation Staff Officer for the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area. Stan is the guy that helps plan, maintain, and manage all those trails Oregonians care about so much. Stan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Zach. Okay, well, the first thing I wanted to get into is, you know, it's been four years since the Eagle Creek fire kind of reshuffled the deck in the Columbia mm-hmm. Gorge. So mm-hmm. how does the gorge look generally and to what extent is the fire still impactful and evident and to what extent is it just kind of the gorge again? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. Obviously, when you drive through the gorge, it does look different from uh, from the Eagle Creek fire that happened in 2017. So what that's been four years ago, uh, what what we do see though is that that in the fire area the ground vegetation is coming back pretty nicely maybe with the exception of those really high intensity burn areas but uh, otherwise it, it 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 looks pretty good yeah and you know it's what i've found is as wildfires have become so frequent in oregon that is actually kind of interesting to go and look at the aftermath of a wildfire um it's not devastation. It's really interesting to see how nature comes back, in what ways it does. And so if you wanted to go out to the gorge and you wanted to see the legacy of the Eagle Creek fire, for for good or bad, I mean, where would you suggest? What's a a good place to say, you know, I see the fire came through here. I see it's changing. Uh, Any suggestions there? Yeah, I I would also add that, you know, when when a lot of folks think about a fire, you know, a 50,000 acre fire, which uh, Eagle Creek was approximately, um, you think that all 50,000 acres just totally destroyed or nuked, but um, typically wildfires burn in a mosaic pattern. There are places where there's very high intensity fire and there are places where there's very low intensity fire. And, and in fact, some people don't even notice those areas. So that that's unique about these wildfires. Um, um, so that that's kind of uh, interesting. So when you think of a, a 50,000 acre fire at Eagle Creek, it's not, you don't see 50,000 acres of totally destroyed landscape. So yeah, if, if you wanted to see the fire, I, I think um, as, as much as I don't want to promote the Eagle Creek Trail, uh, that's where the fire started. And you can see kind of um, both sort of uh, high intensity fire to low intensity fire. Um, the recently opened Oneana Trail is another place where you where you do walk into and can see some pretty high intensity fire in, in, in that drainage as well. So both of those trails, I think, would be some unique experiences. Yeah. And you know, it's, it strikes me. I remember early on when you guys were just putting out pictures of how the trails looked very soon after Eagle Creek, they Mm -hmm. looked really bad. And so it's been fun to watch those trails like come back to life and you know it's taken a few years but uh, the difference is it's really remarkable yeah it's it was uh interesting i learned some things after the fire from our geologists so especially on the the gorge sort of uh west of eagle creek kind of more in you know more around multnomah falls oneana gorge horsetail falls um they called the 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 slopes of of those gorge of the gorge walls in there over steepened and basically what that meant is that the vegetation, because the rock that those slopes in there are so cobbly, if you recall, the little small cobbles, you know, the size of softballs, 
and larger. And when there's ground vegetation and, and moss, uh, basically what it does is hold all of that rock in place. And, and as they slide a little bit, they the, the slopes get steeper than what would normally happen if there wasn't any vegetation holding in place. So when that fire went through, even if it's a low intensity fire and you lose that, all of that, again, moss and, and ground vegetation held all that rock in place. And when that was gone, obviously, it um, caused all these rock slides and the slope is wanting to go back to its normal angle or angle of repose. So these over steepened slopes pre Eagle Creek fire, when they lost that vegetation, now that's why you see all, uh, that's why we saw all those slides after the fire. Yeah, that was almost the most dramatic thing that I noticed was it wasn't necessarily like the the burned trees or anything. It right. was like it was the landslides. It was yeah. like the amount of rock yes. that was down there. Yeah. Well, OK, so, you know, you guys have been slowly reopening these mm-hmm. trails over the past few years, kind of as they're ready, culminating with the reopening of Eagle Creek Trail last July. But ballpark, what percentage of trails have reopened at this point and what are some big names that are still closed? Yeah, I. I would say um, mileage wise, we're probably around that sort of 80 to 85 percent. Uh, all of the all of the very popular trails are now open. Oneonta was sort of the last popular trail that that we we opened again. What was that was this fall? The the trails that remain closed tend to be more um, backcountry trails. The sort of and, and we 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 obviously and purposely. Uh, put those in a lower priority because of access, just getting to them, uh, uh, tend to see lower use on those trails. And uh, we wanted to focus on those very popular trails and trails that were are typically high in demand. The, the two trails that we will be focusing on um, next year will be opening the lower part of the Wyeth Trail and the Nesmith Point Trail. Probably the, the biggest trail or most popular trail that it's not open and, and, and we'll take some time because it this trail is in pretty bad shape. It's the Ruckle Creek Trail. Um, so that that one will also take a, a another peek at again this year to see what it will take to open that. Then then the other sort of um, again less popular trails are Horsetail Creek, um, Moffat Creek, uh, Franklin, uh, Franklin Ridge. No, I'm sorry, Bell Creek. Those trails, again, are further back and not sure if we'll get to them all next year or not. Gotcha. And I would also add, just for for folks listening, that some of the popular trails in the gorge are managed by the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Elwha Falls jumps to mind and, you know, the little little spur down to Elwha is still closed. That's one of my favorite kid hikes for waterfalls. So make sure to check uh, state parks along with you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, jumping out of the before... Eagle Creek came along and, you know, mm-hmm. the big wildfire there was the big story the past few years. You know, previous to that, the gorge, it was always the crowds that we were talking about, you know, overwhelmed trailheads, jam-packed roads, kind of shoulder-to-shoulder hiking. In most parts of the state, and especially in Oregon's outdoors, the pandemic kind of supercharged that, taking us from, you know, maybe a crowded outdoors to even more so. So how has the gorge fared in terms of visitation? Is it busier than ever? Is it organized chaos? What's been the feel there the last year and a half, two years? Yeah, it was sort of interesting uh, during the sort of COVID year 2020. 
um, we thought we were going to get hammered, um, you know, especially when things began to open up. And what we found was it was not, I mean, I, I don't know what the percentage of use was, but it was well below normal in the gorge, whereas our neighbors were just getting hammered. And I don't, I, it may have had to do with the fact that, that there was a concerted effort by both states and the governors of both states and the Forest Service state parks and, and the communities within the gorge. When we said, no, the gorge is still closed. We're not ready to open. Um, you know, when, when, the, uh, when other parts of both Washington and Oregon were opening up, those places, the gorge was sort of highlighted as not ready to open, similar to the, the coast for a while. Oregon coast. So I think that had played a role in, in our low use in 2020. But in um, this year, 2021, um, we're, they're back. I mean, it, it you know, it, we're seeing crowds uh, probably heavier than than pre COVID. So yeah, it's, uh, we're back in that sort of wild state of just a lot of overuse. Maybe I shouldn't call overuse a lot of demand, uh, which results in in those typical things that a lot of urban forest are dealing with, um, you know, with congestion, um, uh, uh, congestion related safety issues along, you know, the historic highway, SR 14, um, the, uh, exit 31 off of I-84 for Multnomah Falls. So those are still very challenging issues that we're, we're dealing with, with, uh, with both states, WashDOT and ODOT and the state parks on both sides of the river. Gotcha. And, you know, and we'll get to some strategies for avoiding those crowds here in just a second. But I wanted to highlight one place that you started looking at uh, controlling crowds a few years ago. And, you know, it continues is Dog Mountain Trail, mm -hmm. which, you know, as most people know, is known for these epic springtime blooms of balsam root, you know, yeah. really mm -hmm. visually stunning trail. You started requiring limited entry weekend permits. So just Saturday and Sunday from April 24th through June 13th. So first off, why did you take that step and how have you seen it work? Yeah, so I um, I, I wouldn't, it, it, I, I guess I wouldn't refer to it as a limited entry permit um, because uh, what we did do, so let me take a step back. As you probably have been aware, um, Dog Mountain has been a very popular location for many years. And prior to us implementing the, this permit system and a shuttle system, um, it was it was getting so bad that we were seeing cars parked along um, State Route 14, a mile to the east and west of the actual trailhead. And the, the highway is very narrow in that location. Um, so people were walking on the roadway. And of course, it's a high speed roadway, 55 miles an hour. Or they would cross the highway and walk along the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad right away, which also was not um, not very safe, but also trespassing on on railroad property. And we began to see um, some accidents occur there as well. We worked with uh, the county commissioners at, uh, at Skamania County who expressed them some significant concerns as, 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 as we, we had our concerns there as well. And with the Washington State Patrol and, um, and WashDOT and trying to come up with a way to sort of organize that parking. And if, if you've ever been there, Right now, it's set up to accommodate about 70 cars, but I've, I was, I've been there and I literally counted over 200 cars in that spot. And that, and that wasn't counting all the cars that were spilling out, on, you know, 
um, parking along the edge of the highway. So, and that's really what prompted us to move towards this way. So we basically, what we did is we required, we tried to come up with a, a number that would, tr- that would keep the parking lot full, right. And not, but not overflow. So we, um, allocated a certain amount of permits, um, that you could reserve in advance to park in the parking lot. If you arrived without a permit, you could actually go back to Stevenson and catch the shuttle, which Skamania County sponsored. Theoretically, um, we still could allow as many people that uh, wanted to to go to Dog Mountain pre-permit because the shuttle service would make up that difference of the cars that were overflowing. So, again, the the primary purpose of this was to limit the number of of cars accessing the trailhead to reduce the safety issues that resulted from the congestion um, around the Dog Mountain Trailhead. Gotcha. And and how is it? How have you seen it play out? Has it accomplished that goal yeah. of reducing the accidents and congestion in that area? Yes, it it really has uh, on during the weekend. But what we have seen though, as you uh, we always talk about the balloon effect in the gorge. So if you squeeze the balloon here, it pops out somewhere else, right? Um, so what we actually are seeing at Dog Mountain is, is that uh, use has increased on Mondays and Fridays, uh, which we don't, of course, require the permits for. Well, you know, one thing that strikes me that's interesting about that place in particular is that you mentioned that you have both permits and you have a shuttle system. And, you know, they're working in tandem, whereas... Yeah. You know, those are kind of two of the tools that it looks like land managers are using to combat an issue that is certainly not specific to the gorge. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of places are seeing, you know, higher use, overuse and the kind of two ways to do it. Like if you look in the central Cascades, you know, they've installed this pretty extensive um, quota system where you got to get a permit in advance to get out there. So that's that's one model. Has the gorge have you considered that more strict quota limited entry permit system like you know, for the gorge, for places like Multnomah Falls or Eagle Creek Trail? Like, could you see that happening down in the future? Or does that not seem to fit with the, the mission of that area? Yeah, well, as you probably know, we, we did do something similar at Multnomah Falls as well, um, where we wanted to, again, limit the number of parking in the historic highway and, and in particular in the 84 parking lot where, again, it, it became really Again, it was a safety issue where folks would back up on the, you know, on the freeway entrance, you know, in the in the fast lane, emergency lane of the fast lane, which was just very dangerous. People would do um, some not very smart things, I would say. Uh, so we we did do something similar again, trying to limit the number of cars uh, per hour uh, that could park in the parking lot at, in in particular, in the 84 parking lot. Uh, to again to try to reduce the uh, the safety issues with the sort of congestion and overflowing parking. Um, last year there were two uh, private companies, shuttle companies, that started up uh, in the historic highway, which were, as I understand, really successful. So this year um, again, the that group of agencies were working on. Um, some strategies to, and, and I don't think it's ready to be released for prime time yet, but looking at some strategies on how to reduce, again, congestion in along, along the historic highway corridor, likely we'll, we'll continue with the permit system for the Multnomah Falls parking lot as well. 
Um, so gorge wide, we, we, we really do need to be strategic on how we approach this. Um, obviously these ticketing or permit systems aren't free. Um, they take quite a bit of on the ground administration. So that's one thing we'd have to be concerned with. How do we make that sustainable and how do we currently, we don't have the capacity to manage something that large. We barely have the capacity to manage Dog Mountain, let alone Multnomah Falls, where we've had to rely on some partners to do that. So so what I'm hearing is at this point, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on some public transportation options, which makes sense given the, you know, the roads going out there mm -hmm. and using these permit systems in strategic locations where uh, the issue is is needed most, Dog Mountain and Multnomah Falls. But there isn't necessarily an appetite at this point to have, you know, a central cascade style, more expansive permit system uh, at, at this point, like there isn't plans for that in the near future. No, not in the near future. Okay. Well, one of the questions that I hear about uh, a decent bit, and I'm positive that you hear about all the time is specific to Oneana Gorge. Now, mm -hmm. this was never an official hike, and but heading up Oneana Creek into that kind of wonderland of a slot canyon was very sought after. People loved it. Um, I, we talked a long time ago about how overuse mm -hmm. was impacting that area. Mm -hmm. It's been closed for quite a while now since the Eagle Creek fire. Yeah. So the question I hear, and I know you hear it, is will it ever reopen in its previous way? It is, after all, public land, mm -hmm. um, but it does have a num it was having a number of problems before the fire. So what's the future plan for what's a really special place yeah no it really is a special place and as a kid uh, me and my family we we do that same hike as the hundreds and thousands of people doing or uh, or ha have done a pre eagle creek fire and would still like to do it so it is a unique definitely a unique and very awesome experience but as you know as you mentioned um uh, pre-Eagle Creek fire, it was just getting overwhelmed with people, um, with rescues and, and the, just the sheer number of people. It, it did cause us uh, some real concern about, um, about, you know, both the recreation experience as well, and probably more importantly, impacts to natural resources. That, that creek is, a, is an anadromous stream. Um, and, uh, in that, and I to to the threatened um, salmon species, and I can't name name the ones, but but it is used by those those species, and 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 it has some uniqueness in terms of its botanical um, characteristics as well. So that it not only um, were we concerned with the recreation experience, but certainly the natural resource uh, impacts to to it as well. So the Eagle Creek fire kind of. Um, was a blessing in disguise for Oneana Gorge in that it, obviously we closed it mainly because it was for safety issues um, that again, as I mentioned earlier, that Oneana uh, drainage uh, burned pretty, pretty intensely in there. So that, uh, and because of that, that high intensity burn, it's more um, susceptible to, to de debris flows. And the last thing that we wanted to see is a debris flow coming down, you know, after a thunderstorm or something during a, a warm summer day and, and uh, you know, go through that gorge with people in it. So that was one of the main reasons we closed it. Also just the more immediate issues of rocks falling into the gorge from just, again, I mentioned, you know, the, the slopes uh, 
with the loss of ground vegetation or rolling rocks and falling trees and stuff. Um, so that was a that was a big concern. Now, now that we're four years away, uh, that that concern has somewhat the the rolling rocks and stuff is somewhat mitigated, but the potential for de debris flows are still there. We will we have um, done some initial analysis on on a, a number of options for us to consider uh, all the way from opening up the way it was before to keeping it closed and everything in between. So our, our next step um, in the next year, two years is doing a, a full analysis on, on options for us to pursue on again, again, uh, all the way from keeping it closed to open it. And, and, and there's not a perfect solution. Obviously, keeping it closed isn't a good solution for recreationists, but uh, unfettered use the way it was before, of course, impacting again, those natural resources. And then are there options in between that we can consider maybe seasonal openings, maybe a permitted entry? And again, we talked about just the capacity for us even to administer something like that. That's a, that will be a challenge. Maybe it's going to be a fee to get in. Um, so we're, we're considering all of those options. We just haven't um, done the analysis yet for that. And, and that will be coming here probably in the next year or two. Okay. So just to, to recap, I mean, it's, it's going to be closed probably, you know, this summer, maybe sure. the next, yeah, yep. this summer for sure. Maybe the next year mm -hmm. as you consider whether, you know, how to reopen it or even if to reopen it. Correct. Yeah. All right. Well, to kind of finish things off here, I thought that it would be worth mentioning the best way to avoid a few of those aforementioned crowds. The tips that I always give people is just to show up really early and then go midweek if you can. But any other suggestions you'd have for getting that best possible experience in the gorge? No, th those are those are really it. Um, also, I would refer to Ready Set Gorge. There's some really good um, some hints there, uh, both for safety and for trip planning. So that's kind of our hopefully are becoming our one-stop information place. It has updated information on which trails are open and closed. So I would I would definitely really uh, want folks to, to go to that or, or, or go to the Forest Service or Oregon State Park or Washington State Park websites. But um, our Ready, Set, Gorge, all of that sort of information is consolidated there in terms of what trails are open and some safety and planning tips. Well, all right. That sums it up pretty well. Um, all right. Well, that was Stan Hinatsu, the Recreation Staff Officer for the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area. Thanks for taking some time, Stan. All right. Thank you, Zach. All right. Well, that was an interview I recorded with Stan right at the end of December. In the time since, I did write a more detailed breakdown of the plan for Oneana Gorge, and you can find that at statesmanjournal.com. Okay, we're going to hear from one more sponsor and then return with Matt and I finishing off our last picks for the best hikes and best food in the gorge. Stay with us. All right, our newest sponsor is Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean beach, ancient forest, and a shocking number of beautiful places you might never have heard of, all centered around towns like Manzanita, Pacific City, and Tillamook. This is a beautiful area to visit, and the best way to plan a trip here is by looking at their newly created trails and recreation map. The map features 800 different sites from campgrounds to beaches to hiking trails. My favorite thing about the map is that it breaks down activities into 13 categories. So say you're looking for a campsite. 
just click on the drop down menu and 22 different campsites appear. And you can get information on each one. If you're looking for a hike or a way to get on the water, the map has 40 different trails and 48 boat ramps all laid out on an easy to navigate digital map. To find the map and get started, visit tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Okay, welcome back. All right, Matt, let's get back to the fun stuff. Where are you taking us with your third pick? Our next stop is uh, a classic, classic hike, but no less awesome. And that's Beacon Rock State Park. It has a great campground, some great trails, Columbia River access. But I think the heart of the park is obviously the uh, Beacon Rock itself. Um, I think it's about 0.7 miles, 0.75 miles up. And I think it's about 700 feet of elevation gain. But there are um, a ton of switchbacks. So if you do decide to take a break, you have plenty of opportunities to do so. And the views, you know, they they start incredible and they somehow just get better and better the higher you go. So um, it's it was it was that this was another hike that kind of early in my outdoors experiences that I gravitated toward because, you know, I didn't have to hike for 15 miles to get to a mountaintop. I could do this kind of 0.75 mile, mile hike and make it up there and still have these really great views. So that it's, that's another one that just, uh, it really jumps out to me. Yeah. And Beacon Rock, you know, the state park is more than just the, the rock, right? Like yeah, there's, yeah. Um, there's the campground in there and then there's trails that go way into the, into some waterfalls back yep. there. Have you, have you explored that area much? A little bit, not as much as I'd like, but, um, yeah, they do have some great trails, the campground beach access there. You, you know, they had, um, at least one dock where you can, you know, if you want to put your boat or kayak into the, to the river, you can do so. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to love. One of my, I, my favorite things I've brought my kids up, uh, beacon rock before, <laughs> and it's fun. It's, it's imposing. Cause they look up yes. at first and they're just like, Whoa, we're going up there. <laughs> like you, you serious. And so I would have them count switchbacks and oh, okay. the grand total number of switchbacks. Can you like, if you had to guess, what do you, how many, how do you, how many do you think it is? Oh, let's see. I'd say like 30. It is 51. 51. Oh, wow. 51 total switchbacks. <laughs> some of them are, some of them are sort of short, but if you count yeah. them all, it's, uh, it's 51. Oh, and, that is uh, so awesome. And you know, there's a fun backstory about the rock, you know, basically Beacon Rock was a giant volcano at, at one point until about 15,000 years ago when the Missoula floods, these famous geological events um, during the last ice age brought these massive floodwaters sweeping down the Columbia River Gorge. We're talking massive water, like nothing we can imagine now. And they actually have a little sign at the top that sort of helps you imagine it. So the, the floods carved away all of the old volcano and left just the lava core, which is what Beacon Rock is now. And speaking of the name, I mean, it's a good name because it's so distinct and it actually got its name from Lewis and Clark on their expedition out here in 1805 for the obvious reasons that they could, you know, pick it out as an obvious landmark on their journey. The history of the rock is pretty interesting too in more modern history. In the early 1900s, there was every intention to destroy it. And to use it as a material for, for building jetties. Wow. In fact, they even started digging into the rock to place the explosives. Like this was something that was going to happen. And you can still find those caves at the bottom. Wow. Um, there was a big effort uh, that went through to, to save it. Uh, eventually, a guy named Henry Biddle purchased the rock in 1915 for one 
dollar um, <laughs> just because this had become a, a contentious political issue. And over the next three years, he blasted that trail to the top, you know, building those 51 switchbacks, the handrails, the bridges up there. And then his family donated it to Washington in 1935 with the understanding that they would protect it as this beautiful natural area. There's even more to that, but that's kind of a, a that's a reader's digest version <laughs> of the history. There's there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. But okay, so if you're heading out to, to Beacon Rock and you're either staying at the campground, you're just doing a quick one on the rock, uh, what's a good place to eat? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so if you are at a Beacon Rock State Park, you're not far from Stevenson. And there are a couple places, well, there are several places in Stevenson I really enjoy, but a couple stand out. Um, one, there is a really good taco truck in uh, a gas station parking lot. It's called Tacos Pepe. And uh, you'll never believe this, but they make an outstanding taco. Um, they were they were definitely a, a go-to stop for me when I was out in the gorge over while researching this guide. And it makes it it's super close to Beacon Rock, so it's a it's a good stop. And then if you decide you want to wash it down with the beer, Stevenson is also home to Walking Man Brewing, which has a newly upgraded and covered patio area, a really inviting pub. They've been brewing beer out there for for years and years and years and uh they they've clearly learned a thing or two because they do it really well and the patio is this kind of nice garden space it's really really lush and it's it's now at least partially covered if it's a rainy day so yeah uh walking man is another fun stop out there i feel like walking man is kind of one of the ogs of the yes. old um micro brew scene i absolutely I only say that because i i feel like i went there a lifetime ago, like decades and decades ago. <laughs> and it was like this novel idea, this kind of like funky, cool brew pub. It, it, that is, that's, mm -hmm. that's the case, huh? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's, um, I think they've been around, oh, upwards of 20 years, maybe mm -hmm. give or take a few years, but yeah, they definitely, they've been around. Yeah. Well, I, I still remember that very distinct, like kind of uh, logo that they have. Cause it, yes. I bought a growler there, like again, like two decades ago. And it's just like, it's gone with me from all the places that I've, I've lived. I'm like, Oh yeah. Walking man. I remember that yeah. place. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to go for my third pick. I'm going to do a slightly different twist and I'm going to pick the Deschutes and Klickitat river trails. Now these both have hiking options, but I'm actually picking them as biking options because they are two of the most beautiful rail trail systems in Oregon. And uh, the other one, uh, Klickitat is on the, the Washington side, but in the gorge, these are great biking options. Uh, typically you'll use a mountain bike for them uh, since they're both uh, gravel trails, but they're pretty, they're very mellow rides. You know, they're mostly about scenery. They're not, you know, super steep single track with jumps and or anything like that. This is a mellow ride. The click of that trail is a little bit more of an adventure and it's just outside Lyle, Washington. Uh, you'll want to do some research on it first because you can do it as kind of a one-way shuttle. You can do some out and back options, but it's one that you want to research a little bit. It also has some seasonal closures, but if you go during the right time of year, there's a beautiful section called Swale Canyon that just makes for a fantastic bike ride. It feels very remote and very, very cool down in there. Um, so check that one out. That's the Klickitat River Trail. And uh, there's a good, you know, if you just Google that, you'll find some good maps. The Deschutes River Trail is a little bit easier to find. There's it's just right there at the state park at the where the, the river uh, meets the Columbia. 
Typically, it's an out and back ride, but it's one I really love, especially in the spring, because you can have that beautiful Eastern Oregon sunshine when the west side is, you know, cooler and rainy and stuff like that. It's this beautiful, sunny river canyon. Uh, some people even bike pack uh, out into the canyon, so they bring camping gear. Um, I rode out 20 miles and back, uh, but you can go a little bit further. There's a bunch of fun old railroad cars that you can stop at along the way. Overall, it's just a nice, scenic, mellow experience. Enjoy that sunshine, some early wildflowers. Uh, so, Matt, have you been on either of these, either on a bike or on foot? A little bit. <clears throat> I have hiked a bit of the Deschutes River Trail, and I think you you did a really great job of summing up what makes it so special. Um, you know, I think it has gotten hit hard by wildfires in the last couple of years, but it's still a really magical place. You know, you have really great wildflower displays in early spring, easy river access in summer, which is never a bad thing. And then it's one of those hikes. It's like hikes or biking trails, as you put it, or as you um, reminded, um, it's snow free in winter. And so if you're still looking for some of the outdoor experience, but maybe you don't want to drive up to the mountain. It's a great, it's a great place to still get outdoors and stretch your legs for sure. All right. So before we get to our fourth pick, Matt, what are you thinking as far as getting a place to eat? I kind of mentioned two places, both Lyle and then, you know, Deschutes River State Park. So mm -hmm. in that general area, they're fairly close. Uh, what are, <laughs> what are some good food options? Yeah, I'd say you're not too far from the Dallas at that point. And um, because this is a Pacific Northwest, the Dallas has a couple of really great craft breweries. One that I'm a particularly big fan of is Free Bridge Brewing in the Dallas. They're right in the middle of downtown. They're housed in an old U.S. mint building that dates back to the 1860s. I think they had started to build it for the U.S. mint. And then for one reason or another, it just never it never opened as a U.S. mint outpost. So they had this unfinished building. And um, what better way to to repurpose it than as a craft brewery. So uh, Freebridge has some really great beers. The location's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's a great place for, I think they also do um, pizza in-house, which is pretty good. So yeah, it's a fun place to, to unwind after, after a day outdoors. Gotcha. The U.S. Yeah. Mint, huh? Mm -hmm. I wonder why they didn't finish the building. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so you're up and we've come to our number four pick. So where are you bringing us with your fourth pick, Matt? All right, we are going to another classic gorge hike. And this was another one of those early hikes that I did in the gorge, sort of still early in my getting into hiking phase. And that would be Catherine Creek, just out near Bingen. It is a pretty quick hike at the, you know, it goes through an old, an old homestead. It ascends to the top of this ridgeline. And then you walk back, um, down the ridgeline back to the highway. It's kind of a nice loop. It's about two miles round trip with about, I think about 250 feet of elevation gain, maybe. And it's really great because there are some really fascinating rock formations that have been important to local Native American tribes for a long time. And then you get views of Mount Hood and I believe Mount Adams to the north. If I'm not mistaken, it's been a little while. And you also, in springtime, you get a ton of really amazing wildflower displays. It's one of the one of the the classic wildflower hikes in the gorge. And when we talked earlier about, you know, some of the best wildflower hikes, this was definitely one that popped into my mind. Um, you know, 
between, you know, April and May, it's just an incredible place to, you know, walk through these hillsides. They're just covered in blooms of all different colors. So yeah, Catherine Creek, another favorite. Yeah, I love that you picked this one. This is one of my favorite hikes too, you know, right across from Hood River. Um, oftentimes mm-hmm. I'm I'm just staying in Hood River on my way to somewhere else. And I always try to pop over to Catherine Creek because it's really unique. It's just has a unique vibe that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. You're kind of into these canyons, past those old homesteads. And the wildflowers, we talked about like, what's the best wildflowers of the gorge? And maybe it's Columbia Hills. I really like Catherine Creek because it offers a little bit of a counterpoint. Uh, the wildflowers don't punch you in the face. You're not swimming yeah. them in them in the same way, but they're more subtle. And there's, I don't want to say there's a greater diversity. But I think there's a greater diversity of different mm-hmm. types of wildflowers that you can kind of pick up, pick out. They're a little bit smaller and it's just overall, it's like, uh, it's just a good scene. Couldn't agree more. And also one cool, one really cool thing about it is for the longest time, once you kind of ascended out of the canyon, you got onto that hillside, there was kind of this wide network of user-made trails and the, the, the gorge scenic area has done a really good job in the last few years of establishing a more set number, a set, you know, coordinating off some of the user-made trails and hopefully letting the hillside recover and kind of keeping people on the same few trails. And I think that's mm-hmm. going to have a lot of impacts here over the next couple of years, because without all that foot traffic, you're going to see even more flowers take bloom. So. Yeah. And one last thing that I wanted, wanted to mention before we talk some food was uh, mm-hmm. there's a cool uh, ADA accessible trail uh, yeah, kind of on the, on the bottom, on the bottom end of it. And one of the things that I, I try to highlight uh, whenever possible is, uh, you know, those wheelchair accessible uh, trails, you know, just cause not, not everybody can get out there and do the, you know, the super long hikes in the same way. So, so that's a cool thing, uh, that they've also, uh, created out there, but what's a, so in this area, um, what are some, some good food options? Yeah. So obviously you mentioned it, you're close to hood river. There's a ton of great stuff in hood river, but I also wanted to shout out white salmon, which is just down the road along highway 14. White Salmon is home to Everybody's Brewing, which if it's a sunny day and as, as, as it so often is out at that side of the gorge, the patio has some really amazing views of Mount Hood to the south. You can, you can pair those views with some really massive plates of nachos, which are never a bad thing, and some really awesome beers. They do um, a really wide range. I think they probably have more, a dozen or more beers on tap at any given time. A lot of, lot of variety and all of it's fantastic. All right, my fourth pick is actually a place that is absolutely perfect if you are hiking with kids and you really want to show them something special, and that is Wakella Falls. Now, it's a very short hike, just two miles out and back, and it's near Cascade Locks, pretty close to the Eagle Creek Trailhead. This this is a hike that packs so much scenery into one tight little package. It brings you into a super deep and narrow gorge. There's major waterfalls, including the Namesake Falls, that is really powerful, multi-tiered waterfall, drops into a big misty plunge pool. You cross a really cool bridge, walk among these boulders that are the sizes of houses. It's one of those hikes that makes you feel like you're in Middle Earth, you know, somewhere else. This is also a place where it's worth thinking about the trail crews that made the reopening possible. So after the Eagle Creek fire, this place was just buried in rockfall, totally covered. It looked like a mess. 
And I actually talked to a guy with the Trail Keepers of Oregon who was on the first one of the first trail crews about a year after the fire because they were going to try to reopen this this trail pretty early on. And he said that while they were working, some dishwasher sized boulders and then volleyball sized rocks started falling down the cliff face where they were working. So they had to get out of there pretty quick. But they've done an amazing job of stabilizing that pathway in the meantime. And today, it looks pretty similar to how it looked before the fire. So any thoughts on Wakella, Matt? I, yeah, I think you summed it up really well. It is it is one of those great intro hikes to the gorge because it does pack so much of that that beauty into such a small space. Yeah, and like you, when I remember seeing the, the photos, the early photos post-Wildflower, I was like, well, that trail's never reopening. <laughs> yeah. And then here it is, and it's still amazing. Um, so yeah, it's a really great hike. And if I am getting food nearby, continuing with the, with the theme, mm-hmm. I think one, another place in Cascade Locks, it's a lot of fun to stop is the East wind drive-in. They serve all kinds of grilled fare, whether it's burgers or hot dogs, you name it. But I think the ice cream is really the star of the show. The, uh, soft serve is, unbelievable it's it's the perfect uh kind of come down you know especially kind of to your point if this is the if this is a really great hike to do with your kids your kids will never get mad at going out for ice cream afterward right um and i remember my first time going to east i remember ordering like a medium ice cream and i actually tried to send it back because i thought they had made a mistake i was just like there's no way that i can eat all of this ice cream. And they were like, no, that's a medium. And I was like, awesome. I love it. Challenge accepted. So, um, that's, you know, if, if you're doing a really family friendly hike, it's a great family friendly place to grab an ice cream cone afterward. Yeah. Waterfalls and ice cream. Uh, that is a combination that is going to win a hundred percent of the time <laughs> with my kids. And I'm pretty yep. sure just about every kid ever born. So absolutely. Right. Well, that's a good one. Um, we are on the home stretch. Here is our, yeah. our fifth and final pick. So Matt, what is, what is your one to, to bring us home? Yes. So there were so many choices. Like I love the fact, by the way, that we are getting to this, this, this final round and we still haven't talked about like some of the some of the bigger places like so far we've only mentioned dog mountain in passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, it's unbelievable that we're that j- I think it just speaks to the beauty of the gorge that we're at this point. Um, my, my final pick is the Rowena crest McCall point and Mosier plateau kind of section of the historic Columbia river highway. Um, so the historic highway it's not drivable east of Hood River between Hood River and Mosier. But once you get to Mosier, you can get back on the highway. And it's one of my favorite stretches of the highway, which, I mean, Waterfall Alley is unbelievable, but it kind of rises out of Mosier. It rises through these like vineyards and farms and kind of more pine forests. And then um, as you reach kind of the crest of the highway out there, you get to Rowena Crest and McCall Point, which in springtime is another contender. There are two trails there. One's kind of a flat hike out to Rowena Plateau. The other one is McCall Point, which is about four miles round trip, if I'm not mistaken. And both are spectacular wildflower hikes in springtime. You can see Mount Hood and Mount Adams from the meadows atop McCall Point. They're just absolutely beautiful. And at the Rowena Crest parking area, there's there's a really famous photograph, or, you know, a famous spot to take photograph 
of the historic highway where it's kind of a U-shape below the plateau. So you have this really nice view of like a U-shaped highway. Um, and if you stay on the highway from Rowena Crest, you will take that in a matter of minutes. But it's also one of the most photographed spots in the gorge. It's really beautiful. You get these really amazing views of kind of the drier side of the gorge, like kind of a lot more of the exposed rock faces, more of the rolling hillsides. It's definitely not as, you know, dramatic in the sense that you don't have these really tall rock walls, but it's still, you know, it's a different kind of beautiful. On the way up there, you can do the Mosier Plateau hike, which actually starts in the community of Mosier. And that's kind of a quick hike. I think it's about three miles round trip, a um, few hundred feet of elevation gain. But it it ends kind of funny enough just below the summit of Mosier Plateau. It's one of my favorite actual sunset spots in the gorge because you have this really unimpeded view west toward Portland and you get to see kind of the gorge looking like this massive like a series of curtains as it kind of rolls off into the horizon so it's really beautiful there's some some swimming holes out there there's uh, a waterfall um, that you can check out along the hike uh, some wildflowers in springtime so yeah it's it's another really fun place and in winter if you're hiking Mosier Plateau you can even see bald eagles flying around so there's there's between those two spots, which are just a few miles apart, or I guess those few spots, I guess, just a few miles apart, it really captures a lot of the the real diversity and natural beauty of the eastern side of the gorge. Yeah, man, you packed a, a lot into that one. <laughs> and, and I mean, and deservedly so. Um, great job of, of covering, you know, a lot. I, I love going that area. And like, you got Rowena Crest, you got McCall mm-hmm. Point, which is tougher, and then Mosier Plateau. Like, each one brings a different element. You mentioned the historic highway between Hood River and Mosier. And we mentioned this in a past podcast where we focus specifically on Hood River, but that is a great bike route. Um, yeah, a really, really fun bike route um, where you can, you know, just get on your bike in Hood River, ride over to Mosier, go through the twin tunnels and, Mm -hmm. and back down. And that's a good one with kids too, because, uh, one of my favorite facts about the historic highway is that it was built for model T's, you know, it was, you know, that highway was one of the first like tourist focused, um, you know, highways established and they needed the model T's to be able to like (laughs) make it. And so they, they're, they're designed at a specific grade that is not too steep and works nicely for road biking. And even Absolutely. if you have kids, they can they can make it up that hill. It's they're not gonna not gonna wear out. So that's one one that I wanted to mention since we were talking kind of historic highway in that area because man, there's just so much. <laughs> Absolutely, it's 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 a lot. It's a lot for sure. So where are you going to take us to to eat here? I'm curious because one of the things that I used to do um, over in Hood Rivers, I'd ride the bike over, eat in Mosier, and then head back. Um, and uh, there's there's a few different places I try. But what what do you, what do you got for that area? Uh, yeah, like you said, a lot of good choices. But I'm a fan of Mosier Company, which is a restaurant in right there in the heart of Mosier. They have a ton of burgers, pizzas, salads, sausages, you name it, um, whatever you're looking for, whatever, you know, if you have people with different uh, dietary restrictions or just different palates, chances are good they'll find something to love. So um, it's, a, it's a great place to uh, unwind after a day outdoors out there for sure. Yeah. And I remember in the spring, I think you can, you can pick up cherries all over the place. Um, like there's a whole bunch of like roadside little fruit stands. And so you'll be pretty full out there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. If you ride your bike over there and, you know, go to the place that you were talking about, pick up some cherries, like you're going to be, you're going to be pulling some extra weights, uh, <laughs> on the, on the ride back. Yeah. It's um, a good day right there. It is a good day. So, all right. In my fifth pick, you, you, you alluded to this in the beginning that we had missed some of the super big name <laughs> hikes. So I'm going to attempt to cram not all of them, but as many as I can into my fifth and final pick. So I'm going with Dog Mountain, Angel's Rest, uh, Lateral Falls, and Cape Horn. Um, <laughs> that definitely is not one, but whatever. Um, I, this is my podcast. I get Your to do po- what I yeah, want. Exactly. <laughs> um, so we've got Dog Mountain, which we've mm-hmm. alluded to a bunch of different times. But, you know, dynamic wildflowers, very steep. Um, but come out in the spring, you do have to get that permit that me and Stan talked about ahead of time. So you take some planning. Maybe you'll take that, that gorge express, um, to lessen the impact of cars out there. Totally worth it though. You've got to do dog mountain at least once. Another steep one is up to angels rest. Um, and that's over in the Multnomah falls area. Also a great place to see wildfire impacts, but be careful up there. And that is the because there's a lot of exposure. And this one has the dubious title of being the deadliest hike in the gorge, just because there have been too many fatal accidents in that area that as an outdoor reporter, I've uh, reported on over the years. Uh, two more wild fl- waterfalls to, to think about out there are Bridal Veil and Lateral Falls. Uh, both beautiful and easy right off the historic highway in that waterfall alley. Um, and then finally Cape Horn, um, which is, you could almost do an entire podcast about Cape Horn. It has, it has a long history with the friends of the Columbia river gorge, which Mm -hmm. again, this, a nonprofit that has done tireless work out there. Um, (laughs) again, I'll probably (laughs) interview somebody with the friends of the Columbia river gorge for its own podcast at some points. Mm -hmm. Um, but that group does a lot of great work and deserve a lot of the credit for, what the gorge is today again we'll make that its own podcast at some point matt do you have a we man uh we've hit a lot of places touched on a lot of things anything that we didn't get to that uh that you want to touch on either from a food or hike or whatever perspective boy i <clears throat> how much more time do we have no um <laughs> i think like i think we've covered a lot of ground i think one other thing that kind of pops to mind is the stretch of, so you talked about the historic Columbia river highway and obviously you still get to drive sections of it. Um, that's kind of how you get to, that's one way you can get to Multnomah falls. That's how you get to lateral falls, bridal veil. That's, we just talked about it in the Mosier, the, the Mosier pick, but there are also parts of it that are no longer open to vehicles. That's the historic Columbia river highway state trail. And a few of those sections, obviously one of those sections goes to the Mosier Twin Tunnels. You just talked about that. But another section of it that I really enjoy is a section that starts in Cascade Locks. And you, well, you can do it between Cascade Locks and kind of the end of Waterfall Alley at the uh, John B. Yeon State Trailhead. I can't remember Mm -hmm. the exact name, but um, you can, you can hike it, you can bike it. um, And it's, there's some really beautiful gorge views, some, some cool waterfalls, some creeks, some nice, uh, kind of panoramic spots. And it's this really beautiful kind of well-graded paved trail. And you can start from the middle of, you know, downtown Cascade locks if you want to, and just make a, make a day out of it. Um, so yeah, that was another one that came to mind. 
All right, Matt, we are going to have to cut ourselves off because otherwise this podcast is going to get into record territory. I think we might have broken the record already. So I'm going to just bring the curtain down right here. Yeah, Um, sorry about that. I'll, we have been talking to Matt Wasterdowski. Matt, just before we sign off, tell us a yes. little bit more about the book, where to get it, and what you're going to get in there. Yes. So it is uh, the it is Moon, Columbia River Gorge, and Mount Hood. It is uh, a guide to all there is to do and enjoy in the Columbia River Gorge on both the Oregon and Washington sides, as well as the Hood River Valley and on, on and around Mount Hood. It includes hikes, overnight accommodations, food options, craft beer, um, basically whatever you need to know to have a great time. And if you would like to purchase it, I would highly recommend doing so through your favorite independent bookstore. It is available through all the usual names, but um, if you have a bookstore that you uh, particularly love, I would recommend uh, ordering through them. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you like what you've heard, check out our catalog of what's now almost 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast, a great place to plan your next outdoor adventure with the help of their new recreation map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us in the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.